Hey, thanks for clicking in. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses that will be celebrated in Catholic churches on November 7th, 2001, the 32nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. And we're in year B of the lectionary cycle if you're into technicalities. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Daily Readings. Scroll down to the date for the Mass and click on in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm here to share some background and context information I've gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, but fair warning, it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. I'll start with the second reading for this Mass. As it's been for several weeks now, it is a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, a copy of the true one, but heaven itself, that he might now appear before God on our behalf. Not that he might offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that is not his own. If that were so, he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. Just as it is appointed that human beings die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ offered once to take away the sins of many will appear a second time, not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. The Word of the Lord. This passage asserts a central point in the author's ongoing argument that the person and work of Jesus the Christ fulfills and eternally replaces the role of the Old Covenant temple and its priests. Throughout the passage, it seems clear to me at least, that the author is comparing the single event of Jesus' death on the cross to the annual ceremonial duties of the temple priests on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He observes that Christ's priestly ministry takes place in the one truly holy place, heaven. The earthly temple was only a shadow presence of God himself. The author is reminding the people that it is limited human imagination that creates our temple spaces. We cannot begin to imagine the nature of being in the true presence of God beyond the limitations of time and space. And, of course, you understand, heaven isn't a place in the physical sense. We're working within the limits of vocabulary and first-century cosmology here. When you hear language that mirrors our current life bounded by space and time, please remember we're using limited images to approach infinite realities. The author further observes that Jesus does not bring God ineffectual surrogate blood offerings year after year as the Levitical priests did. 
Jesus, the sinless one, is both fully human and personage of our triune God. By offering himself once for all, he effects eternal reconciliation of humanity and divinity. So the Levitical priests ministered in a shadow and a copy of the reality, while Jesus the Christ appeared at his place within the Godhead. There, resurrected from the cross, he intercedes on behalf of his people. Jesus is evidence that the Father's heart is also for us, since the Father and Son are one in being and purpose. Not only does Christ surpass the old covenant priests by ministering in the true tabernacle, he also surpasses them through the qualitative superiority of his sacrifice, his demonstration of divine love for us all. Finally, the author of Hebrews highlights the once-for-all nature of Christ's work by assuring his audience that another such event will never again be needed. The promised mystical return of the Christ will not be to heal a breach, but to glorify those who have affixed their hope in him. Now, on to the first reading we'll hear at this Mass. The end of the liturgical year comes two Sundays after this one with the Feast of Christ the King of the Universe. This week and next, our lectionary selections have a finality about them that builds toward this great feast. We start with the first book of Kings, traditionally attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. The book of Kings was originally one book, a sequel to the book of Samuel. The early translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the Septuagint, divided Kings into two books. Kings details about 400 years of Israelite history, starting around the year 960 BC with King Solomon. It covers the division into the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. It ends with the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom. The common focus of both books is the rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom. In Kings, we read a recurring pattern of Israelite kings who disobey or ignore God. Even the great kings David and Solomon succumb to human weakness. Nevertheless, God kept his part of the covenant and the lineage of the house of David remained intact. In Kings, we read how God's people and their leaders repeatedly failed to remain faithful in worship and often excluded or failed to care for the marginalized in their society. Despite periods of rule by a few devout kings, most of the kings in both kingdoms were corrupt. This led to ruin. In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, and the population was scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. In 597 BC, the Babylonians conquered and destroyed Jerusalem, leveling almost all of the great temple built by David and Solomon. During this gradual decline of the nation, God appointed prophets to help guide and counsel the various kings. In Sunday's first reading, we have a story about the prophet Elijah. Remember the gospel accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus? Elijah and Moses appeared and spoke with Jesus. 
Hebrew scripture records both those early prophets as miracle workers. It is Elijah who ascends to heaven without suffering death. We read one miracle story of Elijah at this Mass, the story of Elijah and the widow. Here it is. A reading from the first book of Kings. In those days Elijah the prophet went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the entrance of the city, a widow was gathering sticks there. He called out to her, Please, bring me a small cupful of water to drink. She left to get it, and he called out after her, Please bring along a bit of bread. She answered, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. There is only a handful of flour in my jar and a little oil in my jug. Just now I was collecting a couple of sticks to go in and prepare something for myself and my son. When we have eaten it, we shall die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you propose. But first make me a little cake and bring it to me. Then you can prepare something for yourself and your son. For the Lord the God of Israel says, The jar of flour shall not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, until the day when the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She left and did as Elijah had said. She was able to eat for a year, and he and her son as well. The jar of flour did not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, as the Lord had foretold through Elijah. The Word of the Lord Elijah prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel for about 50 years, beginning around 900 B.C. King Ahab was the king of Israel during Elijah's lifetime. Ahab was a weak, ineffective leader. He acquiesced to his Canaanite wife Jezebel, desecrating synagogues with statues of Canaanite gods. Many Israelites strayed from keeping their covenant with God. When they refused to heed Elijah's warnings, he declared a three-year drought where no rain or dew would fall. Great suffering and famine came to the land. This great drought serves as the apocalyptic end-of-the-world background for this first reading. Elijah encounters a widow in Zarephath, that's in northern Israel, the woman is so destitute that she is collecting sticks to make a fire to cook a last meal for her son and herself. Notice how Elijah first tests the woman's faith. He asks her to use her remaining provisions to first make a bit of cake for him, and promises that she and her son will be cared for. The widow does not know Elijah. She does not know he is a prophet of God. There's a hint here that she isn't even a fellow Jew. She speaks to Elijah of your God. Nonetheless, she appears to trust that he is God's messenger. Even if we are skeptical about her trust of Elijah's prophecy, we still have a picture of a woman who, facing death from starvation, is generous in her destitution and willing to share her meager meal with a stranger in need. Next, 
comes our responsorial psalm for the day. It's taken from Psalm 146. This is the first of four Hallel psalms at the conclusion of the book of Psalms. The Hebrew word Hallel is a call to praise. From it, we get Hallelujah or Alleluia. The last syllable comes from Yah, an abbreviation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, the unutterable name of God. So put together, it's Hallelujah. The verses chosen for this Mass emphasize what modern Catholic bishops have termed the preferential option for the poor to which the Church is called. Clearly, the bishops are not making stuff up. God's overriding concern for the way those with plenty care for those in need is clearly in evidence here in the ancient understanding of the Israelites. Here it is, with the opening refrain repeated only at the end. Praise the Lord, my soul. The Lord keeps faith forever, secures justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets captives free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord raises up those who were bowed down. The Lord loves the just. The Lord protects strangers. The fatherless and the widow he sustains, but the way of the wicked he thwarts. The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion, through all generations. Alleluia. Praise the Lord, my soul. In Mark's Gospel at this Mass, we get another widow story. In Mark's Gospel at this Mass, we get another widow story. I'll read it right now, and then comment on it. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. In the course of his teaching, Jesus said to the crowds, Beware of the scribes who like to go around in long robes and accept greetings in the marketplaces, seats of honor in synagogues, and places of honor at banquets. They devour the houses of widows and, as a pretext, recite lengthy prayers. They will receive a very severe condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and observed how the crowd put money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow also came and put in two small coins worth a few cents. Calling his disciples to himself, he said to them, Amen, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the other contributors to the treasury. For they have all contributed from their surplus wealth. But she, from her poverty, has contributed all she had, her whole livelihood. The Gospel of the Lord In this story, the end times theme is implicit in that Jesus is within days of the end of his earthly life. This is his final visit to the temple. I'm sure you noticed there were two stories in this passage. First, the denunciation of the scribes to the crowd, and then the widow's demonstration of faith that God would somehow see to her needs. 
the setting for this first story is clearly a public event. Within the area of the great temple there was first the court of the Gentiles, into which anyone could go. It was a bustling marketplace atmosphere. The next court was the women's court. In this area there were a number of trumpet-shaped receptacles into which people would toss their offerings. As one commentator pointed out, even though women were not permitted into the inner, more sacred courts of the temple, they were always welcome to contribute to its treasury. It's obvious that all contribution activity from men or women was in public view in this court. Copper coins, the more valuable, made a distinct clatter when tossed into the receptacles. That noise, maybe lots and lots of clattering, would call attention to both the gift and to the giver. In this passage, Mark has Jesus and his disciples there observing the way people contribute their money. Jesus speaks about the cruel corruption of many scribes. At this time, the title scribe designated more than a mere copyist or taker of dictation. Scribes played an important role in Jewish society. They were largely responsible for helping priests, elders, and kings interpret the law. They had access to personal power and wealth by manipulating their positions of authority. By Jesus' time, scribes had obtained much wealth and much societal status. Their high position was both religious and civil. Note the reference to places of honor in both synagogues and at banquet halls. This is also an implied criticism of using one's position within the faith community to seek public honor or notoriety. Jesus points to them as examples of the failure of Jewish institutions and wealthy individuals to heed the Torah's demand to care for the poor and vulnerable. Scribes, who knew better than most Judeans what God's laws were, became flagrant abusers of it. This does not escape Jesus' notice, nor does it escape his condemnation. He says of them, They devour the houses of widows, and as a pretext recite lengthy prayers. Many commentators, and I also, see this as a direct violation of the commandment to refrain from dishonoring God's name. Among the hundreds of statutes in the Torah, that commandment is one of the top ten, you know. The charge of devouring the houses of widows springs from the fact that widows were not allowed to manage their own financial affairs. Scribes were famous for overcompensating themselves for the so-called service they rendered in that management. Jesus contrasts the corrupt scribes with the widow. Much like the widow of Zarephath in the first reading, this widow has been left uncared for and destitute. By comparing this widow to the greedy scribes, Jesus shows us a clear difference between faith that produces self-giving and a faith that is put on public display for self-promotion. In many ways, the story about this widow is a continuation from last week's gospel about the greatest commandment. The Shema prayer requires love of God by acting with love toward others. 
by contributing the last of what little she has, the widow demonstrates complete love of and trust in God. How do we know it is total self-giving? Mark takes the trouble to tell us she has two small, insignificant coins. Had she wanted to withhold anything for herself, she could easily have given just one to the temple treasury. By extension, her complete love of God manifests as trust. Just like the widow of Zarephath, she knows, somehow, God will provide for her. How can Jesus say she has put in more than all the others? It was true then as it remains true today. One with access to much can easily give from abundance in amounts that seem to dwarf the contributions of ordinary men and women. Yet they never suffer any personal loss or feel any diminution of their own lifestyle. There is a point of difference between this widow and the widow in our first reading who chose to share her last meal with Elijah. That first widow offered her gift with the gratitude of Elijah and a promise of future blessing. This gospel widow had neither thanks nor promise of blessing. We can safely presume she went completely unnoticed. Her giving was utterly unilateral. Over the years, I have worked with many organizations and individuals whose charitable contributions were budgeted and regulated solely on the basis of the public notoriety and goodwill that those contributions produced. They were essentially an advertising expense. My own giving to support the work of the church has far too often been calculated on the amount necessary to either keep me from being embarrassed by its insignificance, or in a good year to make myself feel real good or look good to the community. Is that just me? A gift that requires one to dip into daily necessities demonstrates a much greater commitment to genuine love of neighbor. Oops, sounds like I'm getting way too close to preaching mode, so I'll stop. Thanks for clicking in to get ready for Sunday. Let others know these episodes are here. Search the term, Get Ready for Sunday, on just about every podcast app there is. It's an easy, low-risk way to do some evangelizing. I pray you connect with your faith community in person this week. Please stay safe in body and soul. And may God bless you.